Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Lucy Dean Stockton of The Lever, who talks about the United Auto Workers' historic strike against the big three automakers, the union's demands, and billions of dollars the companies have spent on stock buybacks. Ruth Conniff, editor-in-chief of the Wisconsin Examiner, who discusses the battle for democracy in Wisconsin, where Republicans are threatening to impeach a Supreme Court justice to maintain their grip on minority rule. Supporters of imprisoned American Indian movement leader Leonard Peltier, who recently gathered at the White House to call on President Biden to grant the 79-year-old political prisoner executive clemency. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Kenya has launched an inquiry into accusations of abuses committed by British troops stationed in the African nation. The outcome of the investigation could dramatically change the security relationship between Kenya, a former British colony, and the United Kingdom. The investigation will examine the activities of the British Army Training Unit in Kenya, whose soldiers have been accused of murder and sexual abuse. The Guardian reports that the 2012 murder of Agnes Winjuro is expected to be included in the inquiry. The 21-year-old mother was last seen with British troops at a hotel near the barracks. An investigation by the Times of London identified a British soldier as being responsible for the murder. Kenya's Defense Committee in Parliament has put out a call for the public to submit allegations of crimes committed by British troops. A report expected before the end of the year could alter British-Kenyan military cooperation, which currently includes anti-terrorism training support targeting al-Shabaab militants in neighboring Somalia. Over the past two years, Rural Greene County in northeastern Tennessee has collected more than $2.7 million from regional and national settlements with opioid drug manufacturers and distributors. But instead of helping people harmed by addiction, county officials are finding other ways to spend these funds. According to Kaiser Family Foundation News, the local government has used $2.4 million to pay off the county's debt and have directed another $1 million into a capital projects fund. In March, they appropriated $50,000 from that fund to buy a litter crew vehicle and a pickup truck to drive inmates to collect trash along county roads. County Mayor Kevin Morrison defended the spending choices, maintaining that the county had gone into debt over recent years, battling the rising tide of opioid addiction. Among other projects, funds were used to build a new jail and establish a drug court to divert addiction cases. But community activists are pushing for these funds to be spent on opioid addiction education and more drug abuse prevention work with area youth. States are required to spend at least 85% of the money received on opioid-related programs. 
However, news reports found that there's little agreement on how to interpret that standard and little oversight. Recent U.S. economic indicators look good. The economy has grown over 5% since 2019, and unemployment is at a historic low. Real wages increased 3.5% under Biden, among the best growth rate since the 1980s. Inflation, although still higher than pre-pandemic levels, appears to be receding. Yet most polls show Americans are unhappy with the state of the economy, with many struggling to pay their bills. A recent New York Times survey found that only 20% of Americans say the U.S. economy is good or excellent, while nearly half the nation rate the economy as poor. This may reflect the phasing out of federal government COVID pandemic programs that provided working families with emergency Medicaid coverage, expanded food stamp benefits, an eviction moratorium, increased child tax credits, and other anti-poverty measures. To beat back another challenge from Donald Trump, progressives are urging President Biden and his re-election team to boost funding for government programs that were launched during the COVID American Rescue Plan. As In These Times reports, the Congressional Progressive Caucus has developed a list of action items for Biden, which includes expanded paid family sick leave and increased subsidies for health care premiums. Michigan Representative Rashida Tlaib recently introduced the End Child Poverty Act, which would replace the existing child tax credit with a universal child tax benefit that would slash U.S. poverty by 25%. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. The United Auto Workers Union strike against the big three U.S. automakers, launched September 15th, is the first time the UAW has struck all three of the nation's unionized car manufacturers at the same time. The union is employing a tactic of selective escalation, striking one assembly plant at each company, keeping management guessing as to their next targets. GM and Ford have responded to the strike, by announcing they will temporarily lay off 2,600 workers at non-striking factories because those plants depend on parts made at factories on strike. Only 8% of the UAW's 150,000 total members are currently on strike. But UAW President Sean Fain warned that unless serious progress is made in negotiations toward an agreement, the union will expand its strike against General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis. The UAW is seeking a 36% wage increase over four years, expanded benefits, and elimination of a tiered wage structure as the industry shifts toward making electric vehicles that could result in future plant closures. Your reporter spoke with Lucy Dean Stockton, an editor and reporter with a Lever Investigative News site. Here she talks about the union's demands and billions of dollars the companies have spent on stock buybacks. The UAW, they're demanding pretty basic things, a restoration of defined pension benefits, 
They've requested shorter work weeks, which is one of their, I would say, more aggressive demands that they're willing to compromise on. They want stronger job security, and they're seeking the elimination of tiers, where new employees sign on for lesser pay and are supposedly able to catch up to older workers um, in the pay scale, but often never do. Sean Fain, UAW president, specifically has looked at how Big Three spending on Big Three profits have gone up 65% in recent years, whereas auto worker wages are up really just 6%. Sean Fain, he has this common refrain that says if Detroit's three automakers raised CEO pay by 40% over the past four years, then workers should get a similar raise. So in their demands, they started by requesting a 40% increase in wages. Lucy, The union justifies demands that they've made on the big three automakers on the basis that these big car companies have record profits. And your investigation found that these three auto manufacturers authorized $5 billion in stock buybacks over the past 12 months. Maybe just summarize the profitability and what the indicators are of the stock buyback. What does it tell us and the country about the economic position that these big automakers are in. Sure, yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, the big three auto companies, their spending on stock buybacks is up 1,500%. Um, they spent $5 billion on stock, stock buybacks this past 12 months, even though they knew there was an impending strike. And in fact, Stellantis um, actually authorized $500 million more in stock buybacks just last week, days before the strike. So it's it's really actually quite shocking. For those who don't know, stock buybacks, they're also known as share repurchases, but they basically artificially inflate value for shareholders. They're when companies use capital or the cash they have on hand to buy back their stocks from the market. This inflates the prices of existing shares because it comes with the public announcement that excites prices, but it also removes stocks from the market, which makes the shares that people already hold have more value. Um, And it lets shareholders sell off those shares at a profit, which basically effectively enriches Wall Street. And that often comes at the cost of long-term investments that assure insuring companies' ability to exist. So everything from their own investment in research and development to having cash on hand to properly and fairly compensating their workers. Instead of spending on any of those things, they're they're spending money to enrich shareholders. And it's also, I mean, it's been a, it's been a big year for stock buybacks. Um, last year in 2022, all S&P 500 companies set records. They spent over $923 billion on stock buybacks, and which is, I think, a pretty bad sign for our economy in general. But the, the recent buyback spree was particularly bad at these big car companies. We saw... Let me pull up the exact figures that I have. But, I mean, we saw them spend basically an authorized billions of dollars to reap in $21 billion in profit and then basically authorize $5 billion in stock buybacks instead of meeting any of these worker demands. Well, Lucy, I I wanted to get your your reaction to the automaker's claim that the United Auto Workers Union demands would put these companies at a competitive disadvantage especially against non-union car makers down south. And there are a lot of non-union car manufacturers down in several southern states, anti-union southern states. I think that includes Toyota, BMW, Nissan, and Volkswagen. And I wonder how you read that that response. And we also 
We also have Ford CEO Jim Farley's claim that the UAW proposals would bankrupt Ford. We know that's likely not true, although the longer they delay the strike, um, it, that can't be a good financial decision for them. Some estimates that they've lost like $5 billion in the next 10 days. I think that's a pretty common refrain. And I think uh, Sean Fain and other uh, advocates have really called out that competitive is usually a code word for race to the bottom. What we should be asking is not why can't we meet these union demands, but how do we make sure that we can bring these non-union workers into unions? All workers deserve to, to be part of a union so that they can negotiate for better conditions at their companies and better pay and really get a fair share of the profits that they help create. But I think that globalization has been very complicated and it has, I think, made this sort of competitiveness nuanced. That said, I think that the big three could certainly meet the demands that the UAW is asking for and end the strike today if they wanted to. They have the profits to do so and they have the CEO compensation to do so. So saying that it will put them at a competitive disadvantage is, is really just rhetoric. That was Lucy Dean Stockton an editor and reporter with the Lever Investigative News site. Find a link to her article titled Automakers Hand Billions to Shareholders While Stiffing Workers, co-written with Matthew Cunningham Cook, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. America is now witnessing an important battle for democracy in the swing state of Wisconsin. Through the extreme partisan gerrymandered district maps in the state, Republicans have had on challenge control of both houses of the state legislature for over a decade. The failure of democracy in the Badger State is clearly illustrated by election results in 2018. In that year, Democratic State Assembly candidates received 54% of the popular vote in Wisconsin, but due to the gerrymandered maps, Republicans still won 63 of the Assembly's 99 seats. Last April, Liberal Supreme Court Justice candidate Janet Protasewicz won a landslide election victory over a former right-wing state justice. Her victory gave Democrats a 4-3 to majority on the ostensibly nonpartisan state Supreme Court. This new majority is now in position to overturn the gerrymandered maps in a case that was filed soon after Justice Protasewicz took her seat on the state's high court. But in order to maintain their grip on minority rule and prevent a likely decision legalizing abortion in the state, Republicans are threatening to impeach Protasewicz before she's even heard or voted on any case. In a parallel scheme, the GOP-controlled state Senate has recently fired Wisconsin Elections Commission's nonpartisan administrator, Megan Wolf. Your reporter spoke with Ruth Conniff, editor-in-chief of the Wisconsin Examiner, who discusses what's at stake for democracy in Wisconsin, where Republicans are following an anti-democratic playbook employed by the party across the U.S. to defy the will of voters and undermine democratic institutions. There was a statewide race just recently in the spring for Supreme Court because we elect our Supreme Court justices here. And the Democratic supported justice, although they're nonpartisan nominally, they're supported by the political parties. And uh, in this case, the Democratic supported uh, candidate for the for the seat won by 11 points, which is a big margin in Wisconsin. Wisconsinites wanted her. She was openly opposed to the state's 1849 abortion ban. 
and she was also she also described the maps as rigged to favor Republicans. Republicans, after their candidate lost that race, are now saying that because she described the maps as rigged, she shouldn't be permitted to weigh in on a gerrymandering case that is soon coming before the state Supreme Court. And this is not the rule for recusal. The rule for recusal in the Wisconsin Supreme Court is that judges get to decide whether or not to recuse themselves even when their own campaign donors come before them. That's a conservative majority decision. It's it's not great, <laughs> but it just shows you that this, this drive to threaten to impeach this justice is based on nothing legal. It's simply that the Republicans are afraid of losing their gerrymandered majority. And so they've put her in this kind of box where if she weighs in, they say they'll impeach her, you know, and if she doesn't weigh in, then the new liberal majority on the Wisconsin Supreme Court won't rule on gerrymandering. They can continue to gerrymander. Another major issue that will be in front of Wisconsin Supreme Court is abortion. Say a word about that, if you would, because I think that's also one of the motivations for this drive by the Republicans to impeach Justice Protosiewicz. There will be a Supreme Court decision at some point on the issue of abortion. Yeah, that case will probably work its way up to the state Supreme Court. And it's very significant that Janet Protasiewicz won that Supreme Court election because there is now a 4-3 liberal majority that will absolutely uphold abortion rights in Wisconsin. Well, Ruth, as you said in your recent editorial, what's going on in Wisconsin and the challenge to democracy is not just a Wisconsin problem. This is something we've seen a pattern develop across the country where Republicans are manipulating the system. They're exploiting the guardrails that aren't there, that maybe should be there, to uh, secure democracy and impose minority rule. Say a word, if you would, about what's going on in, in Wisconsin and the challenge to democracy and how it applies to the rest of us across the U.S., I mean, one way it applies very directly is that our state Supreme Court was only one vote away from backing Donald Trump's effort to throw out the majority vote for President Biden in Wisconsin. So it was one principled conservative who said no, and he joined the liberals in rejecting that lawsuit. But, you know, that that is a close call. So Trump had only Democratic counties in Wisconsin recounted, and he demanded that over 200,000 votes be thrown out, which conveniently would have given them a victory here. It was just preposterous. And our state Supreme Court was very close to rubber stamping that. We also have one of the 10 states here that sent fake electoral ballots cast in secret by Republican Party officials, the current and former heads of our state Republican Party were involved, transmitted them to Washington, D.C., where our U.S. Senator Ron Johnson tried to hand them off to Vice President Pence and have them counted for Trump in total contravention of reality. You know, the fact that Biden had clearly won the state and that legitimate votes for Biden were already there from Wisconsin. So this is part of a larger nationwide strategy. This, I think, really kind of desperate retrenchment of a political party that does not win majority support in fair elections and has decided that the way to win is to talk a lot of non-existent voter fraud, make it very hard for people to vote. We have one of the toughest in the nation voter ID laws here. Uh, There's been a very specific, explicit focus on preventing people of color and students from voting in Wisconsin. Republican Party officials have been caught stating that. (laughs) that There is an elections commissioner, one of these six people who sits on this elections board, who was a fake elector himself, and as a Republican Party official in his county, sent out an email celebrating in the recent election when U.S. Senator Ron Johnson was reelected and African-American candidate lost, 
that they had done an incredible job of suppressing black and Latino vote in the Milwaukee area where, you know, it would have made a difference in that race. So, you know, it's really aggressive uh, tactics that are being replicated all over the country to undermine democratic institutions, to cancel the votes of a majority of voters, uh, you know, to focus specifically on people of color, on poor people, on students, and prevent their voices from being heard in order to hang on to power. And I think the more that that's recognized and called out and people really, you know, take a stand against it, the better for democracy nationwide. That was Ruth Conniff, editor-in-chief for the Wisconsin Examiner. Find a link to her recent editorial titled Defending Democracy in Wisconsin and Related Commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Hundreds of supporters of imprisoned American Indian movement leader Leonard Peltier rallied outside the White House on September 12th, Peltier's 79th birthday, calling on President Biden to release their brother and elder after more than 47 years of unjust imprisonment. Peltier, who's now in poor health, was imprisoned for the murder of two FBI agents on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota in 1975. His supporters maintained that no evidence tied him to the crime, and exculpatory evidence was withheld at his trial. Amid dancing and drumming, and the lifting up of an enormous banner with their demand, 35 people were arrested when they refused to leave the White House fence line. All were fined $50 and released. The rally was organized by two groups, the NDN Collective and Amnesty International USA. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus was there and recorded several of the speeches. We hear first from Holly Cook Makara with the NDN Collective, who read a letter from Peltier addressed to his supporters. Dear friends, relatives, supporters, and loved ones, 79 years old, Mother Earth has taken us on another journey around Grandfather's son. Babies have taken their first breath. People have lived, loved, and died. Seeds have been planted and sent their roots deep below red earth and their breath to the stars and our ancestors. I am still here. Time has twisted one more year out of me, a year that has been a moment and a year that has been a lifetime. For almost five decades, I've existed in a cage of concrete and steel. Year after year, I have encouraged you to live as spirit warriors even while in here, I can envision what is real and far beyond these walls. I've seen a reawakening of an ancient native pride that does my heart good. I may leave this place in a box. That is a cold truth. But I've put my heart and soul into making our world a better place, and there is a lot of work left to do. I would like to get out and join you in doing it. I know that the spirit warriors coming up behind me have the heart and soul to fight racism and oppression and to fight the greed that is poisoning our lands, waters, and people. We are still here. Remember who you are, even if they come for your land, your water, your family. We are children of Mother Earth, 
and we owe her and her other children our care. I long to turn my face to the sky. In this cage, I'm denied that simple, simple pleasure. I am in prison, but in my mind, I remain as I was born, a free native spirit. That is what allows me to laugh, keeps me laughing. These walls cannot contain my laughter or my hope. I know there are those who stand with me, who work around the clock for my freedom. I've been blessed to have such friends. We are still here and you give me hope. I hope to breathe free, free air before I die. Hope is a hard thing to hold, but no one is strong enough to take it from me. I love you. I hope for you. I pray for you. And prayer is more than a cry to the creator that runs through your head. Prayer is an action. In the spirit of Crazy Horse, Dok Shah, Leonard Peltier. That was Holly Cook Macaro with the NDN Collective, reading a letter from Leonard Peltier. Next is Fawn Sharp, president of the National Congress of American Indians. We're also here with purpose to call out the president of the United States. The only person on the face of this planet that has the sole decision it is a choice he has to make to release Leonard, our relative. We call on the President of the United States, release our elder, release Leonard Peltier, Mr. Biden, release Leonard. We have to understand and realize while we are individuals, while we are in a human body, the strength and the spirit that lies within each one of us is an indestructible force. And while you look at a power structure like this, like the White House and the capital of the United States, the spiritual strength of our people towers. If you could imagine our ancestors from when time began until time ends, from the from the ground to the heavens, how mighty, how powerful we are surrounded by our ancestors every single day. We are surrounded by their strength. We are surrounded by the heavens and our relatives and all things living. So while our relative is, is, is in prison, that is just his body. His spirit has led a movement while he is locked up. He has led a movement, and that movement has affected all of us. And that, my friends, is an indestructible force. There is nothing they can do to break our spirit's rel our, our relative spirit. There's nothing they can do to break our spirit. And we are going to stand here united until our friend, our relative, comes home. Seokwil. That was Fawn Sharp, president of the National Congress of American Indians preceded by Holly Cook Makara with the NDN Collective. Learn more about the campaign pressing President Biden to grant Leonard Peltier executive clemency by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WOZO in Knoxville, Tennessee, KOWA in Olympia, Washington, Global Community Radio Nationwide, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.